Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Wine Podcast. Whether you're curious about what makes a great wine or what's going on in the soil beneath the vines, come and explore the fascinating world of grape growing and winemaking in New Zealand's biggest wine growing region. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of Riverside Nursery. I'm your host, Sophie, editor of Wine Press Magazine. Wine Press Magazine and this podcast are produced by Marlborough Wine, an industry association working to grow, educate, protect and celebrate the region's wine growers. This month's podcast, um, we hear from Tessa Anderson, who's just released her book, 50 Years, 50 Stories, Marlborough, the region that turned the wine world upside down. This recording is from the 2023 Marlborough Book Festival, where Tessa was interviewed by journalist Mike White in front of a fully engaged audience in Blenheim. I love the way that showing their commitment to the theme, most of them had a glass of wine. Um, Mike and Tessa used to work together at the Marlborough Express many years ago, and there's a wonderful connection between the two of them in this interview. Thanks again to the nice folk at the Book Festival for letting us share this recording. They have many other wonderful podcasts on their site, and you'll find a link in the show notes. This morning, I'm joined by Marcus Pickens, General Manager at Marlborough Wine. Morena, Marcus. Morena, Sophie. How's everything with you it's, in the wine uh, world? It's good. What, what are we going? Oh, well, gosh, there's a lot going on in the wine world. Everyone's talking about uh, all the, you know, the, the current things that we're, we're trying to deal with, which is uh, wine sales and moving wine all around the world. Mm, yeah, always a demanding task. It is, it is. Fantastic. So you were part of early discussions with Tessa, weren't you, when she was um, planning this book? I was. I've known Tessa for a good long time, and uh, she did share with me her secret project, and I was asked to, I was sworn to secrecy <laughs> about it, but I just, um, I just remember thinking what potential mm. what a concept and she had a really clear concept didn't she this 50 stories for 50 years not not limited to you know just people's stories or just um stories of news happenings but a, a real range showing the whole fabric oh, of the industry i think that's what makes it you know it's um it's such a wide span of different experiences people have had and and uh you know the unknown stories that come to light it's been uh just a delight to work my way through the book and be part of a small part supporting Tessa along the way. Yeah. So Tessa was a current affairs announcer on radio when she had her first wine interview, which um, was talking to viticulturist Ivan Sutherland about the government-funded vine pool back in the mid-1980s, which was quite a formative time, wasn't it, for oh, Marlborough Wine? Yeah, it was very um, a major for the New Zealand wine industry. It actually gave us a, an opportunity to, uh, you know, reorientate and, and yeah. put grapes in the ground that people wanted. Mm. Saw the future and um, acted on it. Uh, so then she started working at as a reporter at the Marlborough Express in 1996 and was given the wine round, which proved to be quite um, fortuitous. So she went on to become the editor of Wine Press magazine and then New Zealand Wine Grower magazine. And the knowledge and networks she's built up over nearly 30 years is really reflected in this book. Um, the stories look at innovations and the people of the industry and the challenges along the way, including like phylloxera, earthquakes and... COVID-19. Some of those stories that have resonated with you, I think, include... Oh, yes. I, I actually just finished one uh, last night reading about the sort of origins or the birth of the Awatiri region and um, Richard Bowling and the Vavasor family's investment there and, and the, you know, the, the scepticism people had. Mm. And I just think it's uh, so true of the mobile wine industry all the way through. And I just love that um, Cabernet Franc was the going to be the big uh, big thing for the Aotearoa Valley, and actually did perform quite well. I'm I'm amazed, you know, just thinking, gosh, it's changed so much the varietal mix. Um, but 
Yeah, amazing yeah. heady early days. Yeah, now nearly 30,000 hectares yes. covering all of those sub-regions. Um, I like that she also had some great tips. You know, someone, uh, Mike asked her what wines she would take to a desert island and she just, <laughs> she couldn't stop suggesting the ones she'd like to take but explained that uh, she'd need many to make a raft out of her empty bottles which is the kind of rationale I really, I really quite like. Anyway, um, it's a great read. Uh, to get hold of the book, you can check out the show notes and we've got a URL uh, that you can track it down with. In the meantime, enjoy the listen. This story that the book tells goes back to 1973 uh, and Montana secretly coming and buying up farmland on a lightning mission Tell us about that story, how it all began, and how Montana were the pathfinders buying land from these unsuspecting cockies. Well, I don't know if they were unsuspecting, it's just that their land wasn't on the market. I mean, John Maris happened to pick up the phone at Pine Gold Guinness when, and I think it might have been Frank that actually rang, and he rang that number because they were the largest real estate. That's Frank Jukic, explain who Frank Jukic is. Mm. Frank Jukic is the son of the founder of Montana Wines. So his father, Ivan, set it up, and then Frank and Matty, his brother, ran it, basically. So Frank had met Wayne Thomas, who I think is the most undersung hero in the entire wine industry. But Wayne Thomas worked at the DSIR, and he'd had dealings with Frank on the phone because Frank wanted to import some great material. And he rang DSIR and talked to Wayne and said, how do I do this? And Wayne said, well, you can't. You can only import three plants and they have to go through quarantine and you won't get them out for another five years. And Frank apparently swore and cursed and slammed the phone down. But then he had a a professor from California over and he took him to DSIR and they met Wayne and started talking about it. And Wayne, he walked them out to the car and Frank went up to him and said, Wayne, you're just the young man I need in my business. Why don't you come work for me? And Wayne said... You've only met me for 20 minutes. How the hell can you decide that you think I'd be a good employee? And he said, I know what I want when I see it. I want you. And Wayne thought no more about it. But then about two weeks later, he got a phone call from Frank and said, I want you to come to Montana House. So Frank made his way down. Sorry, Wayne made his way down there. And Frank said to him when he walked in, how much are you being paid by the DSIR? And Wayne told him, he said, right, I'll double it. If you like, I'll triple it. And he said, oh, that's all very well, but actually I'm about to head off to Scotland to do my PhD, and all of my furniture and belongings are on a ship on on their way over there. And my wife is very excited about going to the Northern Hemisphere. He said, so I can't can't do it. And and Frank just turned to him and said, well, how about I give you a first-class trip to anywhere in the world, first-class flights and accommodation, so long as it's a wine-producing country or region, and you do that, you take your wife on that, well, then will you come and work with me? And he said, I'll think about it. So he did, he went away and talked to his wife, and he said, right, okay, I'll do it. And next thing he knows, he's um, on a plane travelling down to Gisborne and Hawke's Bay to have a look at Great Land, because Frank wanted to expand Montana, and he had these big plans that could happen in Gisborne and, or Hawke's Bay, and he got down there, and he was looking at land, and Wayne's going, no, no, this is all wrong, wrong land. He had, and he found 800 acres of property in Hawke's Bay that he wanted to buy for grapes. And Wayne said, no, it's only good for carrots or corn. Be no good <laughs> for grapes. I think we're, I don't think we're actually looking at the right land here. And Frank said, what do you mean? He said, well, I just don't think this is right. This is all cropping land. I think you should look somewhere else. Have you ever thought about Marlborough? And Frank said, no, why would I? 
and said, well, you know, it's got lots of sunshine, it doesn't get frost, so very little rain over vintage periods, apart from 1995 and a few other years. Um, I think you should think about it. And, and Frank said, but do they get frosts? And he said, I'm not sure, I'll check. And they must have a Met station somewhere. I'll check it out. So he went out, he contacted the airport, they had a Met station, and found out that they didn't have autumnal frosts very often. And so he presented all this info to Frank, and Frank said, great, let's go and have a look at it. So then that's when they rang Pine Gold Guinness, and John Maris picked up the phone, and he, and he was asked if he could find 400 acres for, for them. Well, over a 36-hour period, John found 20,000. <laughs> and so Frank and Wayne arrived down here on a plane, and they told John that they were buying up for Cloudy Bay Incorporated, which is just the greatest irony of all, isn't it? <laughs> that Cloudy Bay goes on to be the biggest of name in Marlborough. And, it, and I asked Wayne, where did that come from? He said, I have no idea. He said, I think we just, he said, I actually had to check on a map where Marlborough exactly was, and there was Cloudy Bay, and I think that may have been where it came up. So, so they come down here, they, they don't tell the farmers, oh, no. you know, exactly. And at that stage, the farmers have got no reason to think that, that these people are buying up land and going to plant grapes. Oh, that nobody so knew what was going on. So, so what kind of deals did they get on this land? They How much actually were they buying got it for? $463 an acre. Can you give us an idea what? how much land in Marlborough now would be worth that kind of land? Oh, unless it's a bit of a riverbed, I don't think there'd be anything. I know yeah. that when Wayne and Frank were driving around, and they went out to the Rapara, and Wayne loved that land, and he wanted to buy it, because it was 50 to to $100 an acre. And he said, we should be buying this, and Frank said, no, it's too stony. Um, but he wished he'd <laughs> bought up a couple of hundred acres and kept it. But I Don't know at the peak, when I was at the Express, I think the peak was 150000 a hectare. For bare land. For bare land, if you could find it. Yeah, exactly. There's a little bit of bare land out there, but not very much. Okay, and so at what stage does it, it come out that this is Montana? You know, a big wine company. And we're going to plant grapes in Marlborough. At what stage it does took, that it get It took revealed? quite a while, actually. It was um, Frank wanted... If, if Frank had had plants, vines, he would have been pulling, planting them within 24 hours. But he didn't have any plants. So he... he I mean, there's the other famous story that he, he went out um, and came into town. He sent someone into town to um, Lucas Ford and talked to Ted Lucas and said, we need some tractors and we want the Ford tractors and we want 25 of them. And go, Ted was bald at the time, thank goodness, because he would have pulled his hair out anyway, because <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't find 25 Ford tractors in the country, let alone in a little town like Blenheim. And uh, there are stories about a lot of farmers, particularly up around the Brancott Way, where Brancott Estate is, watching as these tractors went in and just wiped out everything. It was, it was a scorched earth policy. Ripped out all the shelter books, um, belts, pulled down all the fences, removed all the troughs, houses, sheds, and then tilled the land to get rid of the lucerne, and then thought about, okay, now what, what have we got to plant? <laughs> We've got to plant something. So the viticulturists in Hawke's Bay and Gisborne were asked to take cuttings, and I meant to bring in something, but I'm not joking, the cuttings that came down, and there were 450,000 of them, were about that thick, and the, and the people that were planting them were told to shove them in the ground. Mm. There were no roots, no nothing, they didn't even have rooting powder on them or anything. They were just literally a stick that may have had a bud on it. And there's stories that you know they were planted upside down, so that if there were buds, the buds were facing into the ground. That, you know, people say, no, that's not true, but um, I've had it from a couple of people. <laughs> no, that is exactly what happened. Tell us about the, um, also, 
you know, it, it was a learning process. They used cones to cover the initial seedling seedlings, didn't they? Oh, yeah, they did, because it was the driest period on record at that time. It had been a really, really dry winter. And so when they were putting these sticks into the ground, the ground was just like sand. And, of course, then we got our nor'westers, or, you know, you start to get into the spring, and there was no growth, and there was no irrigation. There was no irrigation in all of Australasia in, in vineyards back then. Mont Marlborough, Montana, was the first to put in, in irrigation. Um, so these plants were dying in the ground, you know, these little sticks, because they, they had no moisture in the soil. So they figured out, how are we going to protect these to get some water on them? So they, there is a photo up here somewhere. And it's, you can see the tractors came out with these dunce cones, and they were sort of a plastic. They made up 750,000 of them, stapled them, and then they went around and planted them over all the sticks. And then they would go along and they'd pour water in the dunce cap to water the sticks. But, you know, that didn't work terribly well because it just washed all the soil out underneath. And nobody had warned the viticulturists that we had nor'westers <laughs> in Marlborough, <laughs> especially in spring. And so within the very first night, I think, of the nor'wester coming through, there were 750,000 dunce caps. That, and they were around the entire of the region, up against fences and houses. <laughs> it must have looked hilarious. I've, I've got photos of them actually in the truck yeah. going out, but I haven't got them up against the fences. Yeah. But it was disaster after disaster. So when Frank Yukich, you know, declared in August 1973 that wines from here will become world famous, was he being bravely optimistic or spinning a bit of brazen PR or trying to justify buying so much barren farmland. Um, I think it was a little bit of all of that. I think he was brazen and he was really into PR. He br I mean, he, he flew all these people down here for August the 24th, the, the official planting. He, he brought all the old Dali families down so that they so he could show off, basically, to them. Look what I've done. Um, and it's, it was the biggest planting ever undertaken in, in Marlborough, or in New Zealand, mm -hmm. sorry. In fact, in Australasia, again. Nothing like that had ever happened. The biggest one before that was actually up at Mangatangi, where um, they planted um, 300, I think, hectares or acres of grapes up there. And Fabian Yukich, who was Frank's son, said that put him off grapes for life because his father used to wake him up at 5.30 on a Saturday and a Sunday morning and make him plant grapes in this property. And it was a mi the rows were a mile long. And that was by far the biggest planting ever undertaken in New Zealand until Marlborough. Until Bangkok, yeah. Mm. Frank's predictions about how uh, world-famous this region was going to become and, it, and its wines didn't look so flash in that first year when about 75% of those original plantings died, didn't mm, they? They did. I mean, the, as I say, the ground was so dry and there was no, there was no rain and, th and the wind that, that came through and removed all the dunce caps, well, that just took all the moisture, that whatever moisture there had been. Mm. And they were planting, as I say, sticks. There was just no way for anything to grow from something like that. So... Mm. And, but, you know, that was probably a good thing, uh, planting stupid varieties back then. So tell us about that. What were they initially planting? They were planting things like Palomino, which I think is a red variety, um, Baco 22, which was a Pinot Noir variety, which was not, not very flavoursome, um, Flora, a Mulaturga, because Hastings, uh, Hawke's Bay and Gisborne were growing Mulaturga. And so they thought, oh, well, we'll just plant more of that down here. Actually, we have got a picture um, in, Sorry, in the book. Um, we probably uh, yeah, we'll for yeah. Um, that actually there was there was a lot of talk that that Montana had actually planted Cabernet Sauvignon, but there's also been a lot of discussion. No, no, that never happened. But I found out at Colonel Ricard's archives a hand drawn map of the very first plantings out of Brancott in 1973, and there's a huge big patch 
of Cabernet Sauvignon. There it is, as you can see. And um, the, the thick print is written as 1973's planting, and the, the skinny one is actually 1975. So you can see the Cabernet Sauvignon was ripped out and was replaced with Sauvignon Blanc. Rhine Riesling, Riesling Silvanum, which was really just Muller Turgau. Gewürztraminer. These were all, you know, classic varieties. Yeah. Look, it, it, it's incredible to think now that at the time, there was actually quite a bit of opposition to people planting grapes in Marlborough, to oh this dear. new industry coming in. At one point, the Marlborough County Council decreed that no vineyard should be planted north of Old Renewmont Road. If people know the region, you'll know what we're talking about. Tell us the story and about all the people who were opposing people like the roses planting at Waiau River. Yeah, well, the roses wanted to plant in Giffords Lane, which was in Rapara, and they, the council wouldn't allow them. And the reason being was that a lot of the farmers around there and the forestry owners were very concerned because you're not allowed to use hormonal sprays within so many kilometres of a vineyard. And so all these farmers felt that they were going to lose their right to farm the way they had always farmed and for a brand new industry that they had no idea whether it was going to succeed or not. So that was a bit, it was, it was just a fear of the unknown. But there was also a very strong women's temperance union here mm. in Marlborough, and the Roses came up against that well and truly. Yeah, as a boy who went through Sunday school here in Marlborough and entered the Women's Christian Temperance Union um, quizzes each year, I, I know about <laughs> how pervasive and, and forceful they were. They really worked, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, Successful. But, but it, is a, it is amazing. It took the roses had to fight and fight mm -hmm. to kind of get permission. I mean, we're talking about all the Rapara Road, if people know. That the would Golden Mile. They would have all been, you know, illegal to plant grapes if the council had stuck to the guns. So mm. what did the roses have to do? Well, they just kept fighting it, and then they took it to the Environment Court. They just kept fighting and fighting. But it became a really nasty sort of situation because neighbours were holding meetings and the weren't inviting the roses along. And then So they were forming opposition, a group opposition to the, everything that the Roses were trying to do. There was this opposition, and the Roses never had really had the chance to put their side of the story very well. Mm. But then they, when they got it, everybody else benefited from it. Yeah, of course. Mm. And very few of those people who objected do not have grapes on their property now. <laughs> that, that is actually the irony, is that I, I, think I, I think if I went through the map of who lives where, I think you could tick off just about every single person who objected now has a vineyard. So tell us the story. We've, you know, we've talked about some of the other great varieties that were there at the time. Tell us the story of Sauvignon Blanc, which is you know, the most famous variety when it comes to talking about Marlborough and the wine industry. And tell us about some of the crucial people who were behind the decisions to get Sauvignon Blanc. We should never here. have had Sauvignon Blanc. Tell we, us why. Well, um, Ross Spence from Matua Valley had spent quite a lot of time in America and he tried Sauvignon Blanc over there and he loved it and he thought this is a cool climate variety that might do very well in New Zealand so he came back to New Zealand and he asked around whether there were any Sauvignon Blanc vines and he found that there were some at Te Kaupata, which is um, up north and it was the vine sort of library for New Zealand at the time and it's thought that those original Sauvignon Blanc vines were, came from when Romeo Brigato came out here in 1901 and that they were the original. So he took some cuttings and he, he um, planted them up and made some wine with them. And he was working, I think, at Villa Maria at the time, and he made this wine, and it was actually really nice, except the vines were so 
disease that he couldn't get very good crops off them. So he thought, oh, this is a bit of a waste of time. So he then heard that a guy called Berryman had brought in a Sauvignon Blanc vine from California and then it had gone into the maths um, quarantine vineyard. So he went up to Joe Corbin and said, hey, there's, there was some, a Sauvignon Blanc vine brought in. Do you know where it is? And Joe said, yeah, it's over in that vineyard over there, but you better hurry if you want some cuttings because they're all going to be destroyed next week. So Joe went over there with his little wine book which showed the leaves and walked around the entire vin um, plot trying to find the Sauvignon Blanc vines, found them, took half a dozen cuttings and took them back and plant, you know, potted them up. And yeah, fair enough, he went back there in a week's time and they'd all been chopped off at the ground, sprayed and mulched in. So we were, we were literally a week off never getting them. If that had happened, would the marvellous story be completely different or would we have eventually got Sauvignon Blanc? We would have eventually. I think Ross Spence would have just brought in you know, further down the line. But it would have, it would have delayed it. Mm. Certainly would have delayed it. Did Wayne Thomas also, this amazing unsung hero in the whole Marlborough wine story, the reason why Frank Lukic and Montana came to Marlborough in the first place, did he also mention Sauvignon Blanc? Did he think that it might he be He thought that Frank was planting the wrong varieties. And so he suggested we should, he should be planting Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, Gewürztraminer, the, more the European varieties. Mm. And when he found out that Ross Spence had found the, these vines and he had some cuttings, he went to Ross and said, could I get some cuttings to propagate? So he got given six skinny little cuttings and he turned them into 75,000 plants. Mm. He had 30,000 um, acres under glass, the glass house in Avondale, Auckland, where he just cut, did mist propagation, which he learnt to do in America, and then two bud cuttings and planted them in, into pots. But the pots were actually quite little, like they were probably as narrow as, or, you know, as the round of that. And, and so they also got lost in the soil when they were planted. That was almost another disaster. <laughs> when they planted those ones out, they nearly didn't take either. So, how, so Montana comes in here, they buy up heaps of land, and everyone's going, whoa, didn't see this coming. How long before other wine companies and other people started thinking, maybe they're seeing something here, maybe we should get on the boat too? How long before other companies came? It was a while. It was 1978, really. It took a while. I mean, Joe Corbin did say to Wayne and Frank, why, why are you doing this on such a massive scale? Why didn't you just buy 50 acres and plant it and see whether it worked or not? And Wayne said, because if we did, all of you buggers would have been down here and bought up all the <laughs> land and we wouldn't have been able to afford <laughs> to buy it. So we had to do it that way, which was probably... Very correct. When, when a lot of the pioneers in the marble wine industry were planting grapes in the 80s, interest rates were in the mid-20% range, weren't they? Mm. I mean, there were big gambles that people were taking, not for the faint-hearted or the shallow pockets. Um, and maybe the David Honan story, you know, tell us about what oh he yeah, told well you. I actually sat down with David and said, J can you tell Sorry, me, please? just tell us who David Honan is. Well, David Honan is the man who established Cloudy Bay. He owned Cape Mentel in Western Australia, and he had, um, there'd been a, a viticultural conference in Perth, and f I love this story because it's four New Zealanders, three Kiwis, no, four Kiwis, three Aussies, and a Scotsman, and I had no idea about the Scotsman, so I found that really interesting. And so anyway, these four Kiwis had decided they'd go down to Western Australia to see the Cape Mantel because they'd done some new extensions in the winery, and they took down some wine and you know, as you do, put it in the boot of a Ford Falcon that they hired for the weekend, <laughs> drove down there, 
And David had actually tried Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, but it was North Island. This was the first time he had a chance to try Montana, and he was quite taken with it. So he, next week he arrived over in New Zealand and went to, happened to be the Royal Easter Show. And so he went along to it, and they had the wine stands, and he was walking up and down, and he thought, oh, I'll, I'll talk to these people here. But there was all the winemakers were standing around talking and drinking, and there was one guy who was walking up and turning all the bottles around so that people could see what the bottles were in. And he asked somebody, who was that? And they said, oh, that's Kevin Judd. And he went up to Kevin and said, I'd like to talk with you. Can you come and meet me tomorrow? Kevin went home and said to Kimberly, his wife, I think I'm going to be offered a job tomorrow. And he was. But when I asked David, tell me the truth about how Cloudy Bay started, you know, get rid of all the rumours. How did it start? And he went, a million dollars at 23.5%. A million dollars at 23.5%. That's how Cloudy Bay started. And I mean, it is, it's quite phenomenal. And he went back to Australia and talked to his brother, David, who Mike wasn't, oh, Mark, sorry, Mark wasn't aware of. And he came over and talked to the banks. And he had a very good friend, the, the Honourable Simon Fraser. And Simon Fraser is the head of the Fraser Worldwide Clan, Earl of Lovett. And he had, a, he had the collateral to back up the $1 million loan. He didn't put money in, but he backed... Mark and David's bid for the million dollars. Mm. And that's how they got the money. So the, the four Kiwis were the guys that took the wine down. The three Aussies were Kevin, David, and Mark Honan. And then the Scotsman was um, Simon Fraser. And Just a lovely story I'd never heard. Yeah, and the rest is history. I mean, mm. like you say, yeah, exactly. it's the most iconic kind of yeah. label in in the Marlborough wine industry. Well, in those early days, though, was there an element of flying by the city of pants with the winemaking and in with with Sav Blanc in particular? Well, I think the really interesting thing is that Corbyn's sold Cloudy Bay their land, um, which mm. is, you know, we all know, in um, Jackson's, Road. Jackson's Road, and sold land to also to Alan Scott, who set up, you know, Alan mm. Scott family estate. So, you know, Corbyn sold that land, and Alan Scott was the viticulturalist at Corbyn's at the time, and he'd been told under no uncertain terms, um, do not plant Sauvignon Blanc. So he wasn't allowed to, but he went against them and planted eight hectares of Sauvignon Blanc, and he called it Ryan Riesling for <laughs> five years. And so when, when, when the first crops came on stream, he thought, shit, what am I going to do now? I've got the Sauvignon Blanc, and I, I'm not allowed to have it. What am I going to do with it? So he and David Honan came to this deal that um, David would build the Cloudy Bay Winery and Corbins would supply 40 tonnes of Sauvignon Blanc fruit that Corbins didn't want. And they could make, and then Corbins were allowed to use the winery to make their Stoneley wines. So it was a lovely little interlude that they all worked together. But the very first couple of years, that Sauvignon Blanc fruit from Corbins was trucked up to Gisborne where Kevin was working for Celex and it was made up there. Yeah. Tell us the story of, of how Sauvignon Blanc kind of came to, uh, to be known internationally and the story of Ernie Hunter and that London Wine Show. Oh, the, yeah, the London Wine, I mean, I think he's also probably someone we don't give enough, I mean, he does get a lot Tell of credit. Tell us about Ernie. Um, for well, Ernie, you know, know, was a bullion Irishman who um, once met, never forgotten, um, and he just had the gift of the gab, you know, the real Irish gift of the gab. And he, he was innovative in everything he did, especially marketing. And he took his wines to the London, the Sunday London Times show, and for the first time, the New Zealand wines were there. And it was actually a Fumé Blanc that he'd made, or Elmer Lorenz had made. And he took it there, and, and it was 
judged by judges, all the wines were like, like a wine show, but the public were also invited to taste these wines and they were allowed to vote what they thought was most popular. So Ernie, being Ernie, decided that he'd, he'd have oysters, he'd pair oysters with his wine. And, you know, oysters and Sauvignon Blanc go together very well. But what he told everybody was that he'd had them flown in from Bluff that day. <laughs> and I tell you what, everybody lapped it up and, and believed him. And then they just thought the oysters in the Sauvignon Blanc was just fantastic and it was voted as the best wine of the show. The French walked out. <laughs> they were disgusted because they'd never lost it. So I'm Jeff Thorpe, I'm the founder and managing director of River Sun Nursery up in sunny Gisborne. We are propagators of grafted grapevines, kiwi fruit vines, avocado plants to supply the relative industries. Yeah, there's a whole lot that sits in behind that and we like to see ourselves as leaders in all of those industries. We've worked hard to try and earn that, that title, I guess, by pioneering things like um, certification uh, systems, new genetics, bringing new genetics to the industry, product innovation, um, quality initiatives, and scale. Yeah, I originally started Riverson way back in 1982. I guess I was very fortunate. I discovered my passion for growing plants um, as a 17-year-old with a, with a big vegetable garden. But I started a backyard nursery in 1981 and then went full-time in 82. And yeah, as I say, started as a one-man band and it, it continues to build it to this day. But it, I guess it was, yeah, I was fortunate to find that passion, to find my life purpose was about a love of growing plants, you know, and hence the growing excellence. You know, it's not just growing plants. For me, it's very much about growing the, the very best plants that we can. I mean, um. Oz Clark, the, the wine critic, he, he describes uh, Sav Blanc as, he says, it's the people's wine, it's the radical wine, it's a scourge of the wine snob, it's the slayer of privilege, it's the toppler of great citadels of elitism, which is exactly what you're talking about. And, and he says that Marlborough was debasing itself, but it managed to create a people's wine, and it was the first ever wine that was a bloody good drink. And it was understandable. You don't have to be intellectual about it. You can be, but you don't have to be. So, mm. so just tell us about why Savlon had so much appeal internationally. Well, because I think anybody, and I mean, I um, wouldn't say that I've got a great palate at all, but I can taste a Malta Sauvignon Blanc out of any wines. There's just something about it. The smell, you get it to your nose, you can tell straight away that it's a Sevy. Um, so it automatically made people feel like they were really quite knowledgeable. They pick up this glass and go, oh, that must be a Marlborough Savvy, and have a mouthful. Wow, you know a lot. Wow, <laughs> you know, how, how good are you, kind of thing. So that made people feel quite sort of snobby, and, and it, but it was a good drink. It also it was quenching. Yeah. I think it just had flavours that had never been experienced before. And, and Oz said when he first tasted it, it was so different to anything that they'd been drinking. Mm. But it didn't take off initially, you know, mm. like a rocket, did it? It took a little bit of time. So why was that? Oh, I think because we didn't have the marketing ability. We'd never, we've never sold wine overseas before, before Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, really. I mean, we, we didn't, that was one of the things that Frank Fukic really wanted to do, was he wanted to put Marlborough on New Zealand on the world wine map. But because we didn't have an export industry, Pe um, Terry Dunleavy set up the Export Guild, which was sending people around the world with our wines and taking them into like the New Zealand trade fair, London trade fair, 
and that was a first. So it, it, it took people like Oz Clark to write and rave about it, and then it just gradually built from there. I mean, as he says, the irony of the, of the Safwonk story is that it was, as he calls it, miserable bloody land. Sheep starved on it. And, you know, having grown up in, in Spring Creek and my mates up the Rapara Road, you know, on that dry, stony land, we would have never foreseen that, that one day it could be the most expensive land in the country almost. Well, there's a lo really lovely story that Wayne tells about this guy from Renwick who came up to him after a couple of years when Montana had been here and said, I wonder if whether you think my land would be any good for grapes. And he took Wayne out to it and Wayne had a look and said, yeah, well, what are you doing with it now? And he said, I'm running sheep. And he said, how many? He said, oh, one to eight acres. <laughs> and he said, one to eight acres. And he said, yeah. And he said, well, I think you might make a bit more money if you planted grapes. <laughs> did he take his advice? Yes, he did. Oh, yeah, but rich but man now. <laughs> no, no, the bank manager told him he had to plant Millith. And I hope it wasn't you that told him this, Ross. Because <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to plant Sauvignon Blanc, and, and the guy said, no, I don't, I don't believe in that one. Muller Turgau, please. Well, so t well, tell us about Muller Turgau, because you know, a lot of people um, may remember in the 80s, all those vines had to be pulled because of phylloxera. So tell us that story, and whether that was a blessing in disguise well, for Some Marlborough. people would say that, there were people in this room that I know who would say that it was definitely a blessing in disguise. The government... There was this big story talk that they, we'd had we'd had two years with gluts of grapes, and the government decided that it was it was no good. We had to do something. They had to do something about it. So they told the wine industry they had to pull a certain percentage of grapes out, and they'd be paid. I think it was five thousand dollars a hectare or an acre for those grapes to be pulled out. So, so the idea was that the, that you know we wouldn't get this glut situation. We'd be able to get back into a supply of demand. But the problem was that some people pulled out their grapes, got their money, and then replanted, but planted with Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay or better clones of Pinot Noir. So it worked out very well in the sense that Phylloxera um, and the vine pool killed off the, the industry at the time, but it actually meant that they could plant better varieties. Yeah. At what stage was it in this whole process from those pioneering days in the 70s and, and 80s that people really realise that, hey, this is for real, this is a huge industry, and that this is putting Marlborough on the world map. When did that really happen? I don't think that happened until well into the 80s. I think there was always this, there was always this fear, you know, people were waiting for it to fall flat on its face. It's kind of like, I think I've quoted in the book, like the two O's, the ostriches and the olives, <laughs> that everybody thought <laughs> they were going to make their millions out of olives or ostriches, and neither of those worked. And I think People think, oh, it's just going to be like kiwi fruit. It's going to go up like this, and it's going to crash. And we have to be careful; we don't lose the whole, the whole province doesn't go under with it. I think there was always that fear. So, you mentioned about the French sniffly walking out uh, at the, um, the the London Sunday Times Trophy. How did the rest of the world, especially the old winemaking world, react to a Savlon, b New Zealand? being a major wine producer? Oh, I think nobody quite believed it, to be honest. I think, you know, they'd walk out. I think it's very like anybody who's seen that movie about the Americans in Napa that produced the Chardonnay and they put it up against French Burgundy and it won in the shows. And the French walked out of that one as well. They're not very good at um, taking losses <laughs> in the wine. I mean, I think because wine is still considered a very European old world product, and how could these upstarts from down under that produce butter and meat, how could they possibly make wine? 
They haven't got any heritage to it. I think because that is pretty strong. Is that, yeah. is there an element of that still? No, that's why we're so good at what we're doing. Is because we haven't got that heritage. No, but I mean, in the rest of the world, do they still look at, at New Zealand and think, you, you know, you're, you're no, inferior? No, I think they look, how can, we, how can we emulate what they've done? Because mm. I think we do have to realise, too, that no one in the world has ever, ever achieved what Melbourne's achieved in 50 years. And I made a comment a couple of times in the last week that um, a lot of people in the book have said that Melbourne's the size of champagne. We now have to work on making it as value-driven as champagne is. But you know, champagne had had centuries to develop their reputation. Mm. We've had fifty years. But can we be as famous in the future as champagne? Yes, we can. Well, I think we already are. Yeah. Mm. And you know, in I don't France think there's anywhere in the world you could go now and go into a bar and not find a glass of Malbec Sauvignon. I've I, we've got a Russian daughter-in-law, and she took photos of wine lists in Moscow, and she was over last. All these New Zealand wines, Sauvignon Blanc, and they're the highest-priced wines by the glass in these bars in Moscow. There's no Ukrainian wine I might have. You're absolutely, <laughs> you're absolutely right. We were in um, Alaska uh, in the middle of nowhere in this tiny little uh, coastal village and that had one restaurant and there was White Hat and Sauv Blanc on the menu there it's as well. It's a good well. feeling, isn't it? Oh, I took a photo straight away and sent it to uh, a friend, Brenda Webb, who, who grows for Whitehaven. I mean, it's, it is. It's, it's really has, you know, taken the world, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah. And it's something that I think every single person in Marlborough is very proud of. Yeah. I mean, we just, you know, we should be very proud of it because we've some, something special has happened here in a very short period of time. There was a lot of ingenuity and innovation in the wine industry. Um, people have thought laterally, obviously. I had no idea. There's a, you know, in Tessa's book, there are stories that I just had never heard. There are people that I didn't know about. It's a real fantastic uh, revelation about the actual wine industry. So thanks for that, Tess. I had no idea that Peter Yeelands tried guinea pigs as a way to keep down the grass in between yep. the rows. Tell us how that worked out. Oh, I think this is probably the best quote ever from the wine industry, that the guinea pigs became the Hawks McDonald's <laughs> because they were just flying in and picking up the guinea pigs and taking off with them. And it, it took a while before the workers realised that the numbers were declining quite steadily and then, yeah, he refers to them as McDonald's. Mm. So what did Peter do instead of that? We what did he replace sheep. them with? He went yeah. to baby doll sheep, yeah. which are only stand about this high. They eat the grass. They can't get the fruit so because they're too, sh too mm. short and they're too big for a hawk to pick up. <laughs> I mean, it would have been different if we still had our, our um, the, eagles. The Haast eagle, yeah. yeah, yeah that might have right. been a shame. That would have been a meal and a half. Um, so there have been bad vintages... There have been terrible times of terrible weather, disease, bugs, earthquakes, but the industry survived. What are the challenges in the future that we might face? Well, I think global warming, climate changes. You know, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is very distinct and unique. Is it because of our climate? Well, it is. You know, it's that whole terroir thing of climate, um, people, soils, that, all of that. So. If Marlborough gets warmer and warmer, does that mean that Sauvignon Blanc is going to be better grown in central Otago? I mean, we don't know. Maybe we'll be the Bordeaux capital of New Zealand. Bordeaux Reds. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's an issue. I think, I think one of the things that we must never underestimate with the wine industry either is that we have been through some really tough times. But the industry individuals are incredibly passionate 
I mean, that's one of the reasons I've just loved writing for Wayne Street. It doesn't, you know, I, even after the earthquakes, when people were really, really struggling, or after 2008, 2009, the global financial crisis, everybody still had a smile on their face. Everybody was still, you know, here, have a glass. You know, what, would you, what do you want to drink? And, and that is something really special. I don't know of any other industry that could come through what we've come through and still smile about it and still be really looking forward to the next vintage. Every time I drive up the Warrow Valley to see my mum and Nelson, I'm amazed mm. at the more how much more cleared farmland there is, the piles of, of, of posts. And you keep thinking, well, that must be the limit. And it keeps getting further and further it out. It does. And, and you keep thinking, wow, are we going to see vines around St. Arnold uh, at well, some stage? We're just about up there now. We're past well, the I know. Over. I remember when they said, you know, it wouldn't go past the Waihopai. Yeah, Bedford Road was the Montana thing. You never pass east of Bedford Road. Yeah. And I think it's 77 kilometres, I think I measured out to where they are now. So is there a limit? Will it end somewhere someday? Yeah, it will have to, I imagine. How? I, well, I think it will have to because we won't be able to afford the um, frost machines. Yeah. Um, and water. Water will be probably the biggest thing. I mean, not up there so far, but I think going further south, there's still a lot of land around Ward, Kekarangi, Kekarangi is producing some very fine wines, mm. and so there's that area. If they can, a Brian River water scheme comes it through, you know, if they can get water to the areas or dams, that'll be the next big subregion. And we can sell all the wine if we, even if we keep expanding. Well, Patrick Natterman, who was Mr. Montana for so many years, now works for Inverdon. He said, you know, he's he's doing a whole lot of stuff in America, and he said, you know, there's still probably 45% of Americans have never even heard of Melbourne Sauvignon Blanc. If they all wanted to buy a bottle, we would be out of stock within six weeks. We would not be able to supply it. So you imagine that we will see vines going in, continuing to grow and go in, and the Melbourne wine-growing region continuing to expand? Well, I think we're going to be limited by, by land, suitable land and suitable terroir, but I do think we will see vines going in because I think we're also getting to the stage now that the vines that were originally planted are getting old and they need to be replaced. So we're going to see more replanting. Do, I mean, when you fly into Melbourne, you see the extent mm. of grapes. It, a, and do you have any concerns or fears or has anyone expressed them to you about Melbourne being a monoculture and being so reliant on the grape industry? Oh, I think that there's always that undertone. I mean, we felt it when we were at the Express, you know, and I think the funny thing is I've got a son who's living on a farm, uh, and ironically in Mangatangi now, and I had great joy in telling him that he was actually living on the land with, which was the largest vineyard block in New Zealand up until 1973. Um, and, I mean, he's the sort of person that the next generation comes through, and he, that's all he's ever known. And he hates the fact that you can't see animals. And, mm. you know, there's no cattle or sheep, or very few now to be seen. So I think there is always going to be that, um, you know, monoculture. It's dangerous if it's all eggs in one basket. And it's not just that it's grapes, it's the fact that our Sauvignon Blanc is based on one clone and one clone only. So if something like a PSA hits our Sauvignon Blanc clone, which comes out of California, and it's and that clone is susceptible to a disease, mm. then you know we have wiped out, we'll wipe out 27,000 hectares. Is that what it is now, 27,000 hectares? I think that's right, isn't it, Marcus, 27,000? Right. Close to 30,000, yeah. I, I mean, do, do you laugh when you think that Gisborne 
thought that it was always going to be New Zealand's premier wine-growing region and was dismissive of Marlborough and said, you'll, you know, you'll never amount to anything. Well, I think that e Hawke's Bay was even worse because they were the oldest in the sense with, mm. with the mission of state. I think that they really felt that Marlborough was just the new kid on the block and what an upstart it was. Um, I find I, what I find the most fascinating thing is um, the Awatere is now bigger than Hawke's Bay, Gisborne and Central Otago combined. <laughs> And Nelson, I think we could put the four in there. Wow. So our Awatere Valley, which you know really only started coming on stream in the late 80s, mm -hmm. and it's now combined, you know, all of those other regions. Mm. Looking back on your decades of involvement with the wine industry, I mean, first of all, did you? When did that involvement in the wine industry start? Was it when you were at the Express and you got given the wine round? I got given a wine round and nobody wanted it. Brenda and I were just laughing about that the other day. Nobody wanted the police round either, or the arts round. And I ended up with all of them. I was just a sucker for punishment back then, I think. Um, no, <laughs> Ross and I actually did have a vineyard um, prior to me starting at the Express. And Ross is actually a member of, of one of New Zealand's old, or if not the oldest wine club in the country. So there's a group of guys that all used to get together on a Friday night and drink wine instead of going to the pub. And, you know, there's been some big names have come through that over the years. And... Um, so, yeah, Ross has always had an interest, and I've always enjoyed drinking it. So and, uh, yeah, exactly, but, but you really finding out more about the industry and interviewing some of the characters that started at the Express it did. in that time. Although I had been doing interviews when I was on radio. That's right. I can yeah. remember interviewing Ivan Sutherland about the Great Pool in 85 right. on radio, so yeah. I didn't know what I was talking about then. <laughs> I don't know I do now, but... <laughs> So looking back on the decades that you have been involved in the industry, what is it that most strikes you or sticks in your mind about the people you've met and the things you've witnessed? I think that what I was just saying before, the, the positivity and the, the working together. There's just such a, um, a comradeship working together. Mm. I think everybody in the industry looks out for each other. And I remember Jane Hunter saying that in the early days with the Export Guild, it was always New Zealand first, Marlborough second, and then Hunters. You know, and I and I see that even now. You know, I'm sure Belinda would agree with me that it's New Zealand, Marlborough, then Lawson's Dry Hills. You don't <laughs> yeah. go Lawson's yeah. Dry Hills, Marlborough, then New Zealand. It's always the other way around. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's a very very positive thing. And if you had to choose one wine test on your desert island from all the wines oh that you've goodness. tasted in this... Pardon? Yeah. No, no pressure. It depends on the variety. All right, you're allowed two or three. Then. Okay. I would take an Astrolab... Um, no, yeah, an Astrolab Chenin Blanc. I would take a Jules Taylor um, Grunewald liner and a Forest, maybe, and I would. it would be a Hunter's Miru Miru Sparkling or Nautilus Sparkling or Number One Family Estate. Uh, yeah, well, well, you did say no. I could choose more than one. Yeah, and yeah, then it would yeah. Be yeah. The suitcases on your desert island are getting pretty heavy by now, Tess. But I'll be able to use the bottles to make a raft. You <laughs> see, I've thought this through. The more I take, the more I, a raft I'll have. Tess, look, look. The book. Um, we we have to tell people that the book is finished in draft form. I've been lucky enough to see a, a PDF of it and to read it. It is an amazing book with amazing stories in it. It's going to be out in September, isn't it? Yes. Um, it's been a process, though, that's gone on for quite a few years. Tell us when you first got the idea of the book and what that process has been. Well, the, the idea actually came back in... The Pernod Ricard celebrated their 30th Sauvignon Blanc vintage, and they brought Jean Key and 
Frank Jukic down to unveil that um, Wines from Here Will Become World Famous um, statue out at Brancott. And Frank spoke at that, and I was just inspired by him. I just thought, wow, what amazing. I spoke to Fabian, his son, and tried to get to interview him. But at the time I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. He's still alive. He's still here. This is the man that set Marlborough on the road. How often do you ever get that opportunity to talk to the people mm. that pioneered it? And then when it got to 40, the 40th uh, anniversary, I tracked down Wayne Thomas, who was living in the United Arab Emirates, and he rang, I, I don't know how I found him, but anyway, he rang me one, and we talked for about an hour and a half, and we just clicked. And I thought, there is such a good story here. And then I thought, well, there's actually lots of good stories here. <laughs> and then it was like, well, it's 50 years, 50 stories. That seemed like a really good idea. But it was all supposed to have been done and written last year all of last year, but of course that never happened because of the stroke. And my left hand doesn't type very well. And I've found that AI is not very accurate. Oh, voice dictation. Oh, yeah. voice dictation. Marlborough becomes Barbara, <laughs> or marbles. In fact, at one stage I had, I had a sentence and I had to go back because I'd handwritten and then read it out. I had to go back and get my handwritten notes because Marlborough and Sauvignon Blanc became really rude names. I can't quite think what some of them were, but they were quite rude. But it was Marlborough Pine Nuts and <laughs> Yvonne's, oh, son, 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 Yvonne's or something, um, a world, you know, a world famous. It was like, and, and then I remember sending a story to David Honan to sign off on, and he came back to me and said, who the hell is this Barbara that keeps coming <laughs> up in the story? And I was going, oh, sorry, I'm doing, I'm doing speech to text, and it keeps changing Marlborough to Barbara. And he went, oh, good, I just wondered who the hell she was. <laughs> uh, I think he was a bit concerned that his wife might think there was some other woman in his life. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a fantastic book. Um, thanks so much for writing Can it. Can I just mention, yeah. though, Kevin Judd yeah. photos. I mean, we all know Kevin Judd. He's just, his photos are amazing. So he has been absolutely fantastic. We've got unbelievable hero shots from him that he has provided, and Jim Canick as well. So yeah, one of the sponsors yeah. of, of the festival. festival. So um, the photos are outstanding. Plus, we have some photos that I got from Pernod Ricard that have never seen the light of day since they were taken. So there's some unbelievable black and whites yeah. in there as well, which I'm pretty proud of. We've got a few minutes for questions. People, um, we've got a couple of microphones which people will bring around. Um, and just wait till the microphone arrives before you speak because we're recording this for a podcast. Um, why do you think they came to Melbourne rather than Tasman? Um, well, I think that Wayne had spent quite a lot of his university holidays here in Marlborough, staying with a friend. He didn't know much about Tasman. But ironically, Romeo Brigato went, recommended Nelson over Marlborough when he came through in early 1900s. But I think that it, was, it came down to Wayne Thomas and the information that he gave to Frank. And something that I didn't mention there is that when Frank bought all of that land and he bought nine properties, he bought it on the condition that he paid a 10% deposit which was about 130-something thousand dollars he, he would have had to pay. And he didn't have the money because the board hadn't approved it. So he mortgaged his house, but he didn't tell his wife. <laughs> Interestingly, um, they weren't married for very long after that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so he, he literally mortgaged his house to pay the deposit. Then he went back up to Auckland and said to the board, I want to expand into Marlborough. And I've, he didn't really explain it very well. He said, I want to expand into Marlborough. I've bought this land and I've paid the deposit, but we now have to pay it off. And the board said, no, no, you can't do it. Frank didn't last very long with Montana, no. did he? No, 15 despite months later he was being going. Despite being a prescient, despite being a pioneer, despite being ballsy as hell, 
Oh, they yeah. didn't thank him for it. Not much, no. So what happened to it? Well, he um, he got moved sideways. He was still on the board, stayed on the board of Montana, but then Wayne Thomas and he and a few others bought Penfolds New Zealand, and they, that's when, when you talk about the other companies coming in, when Penfolds came in here in 78, it was Frank and Wayne mm. who came in here, and they, they decided then, well, we won't, we won't buy land, and we won't build a winery, we'll get growers. Mm. And so that was the first sort of real contract growers came in under Penfolds. You know, he, he was just, he, he just pushed too hard too quick. But we've got... We've got, we're the ones that have yeah, benefited exactly. from it. Exactly, we can thank but him for yeah, that. We can thank him, but I don't think the board was very happy with him. No, oh, indeed. Any other questions? Well, we've got a chance with Tess here. Look, thanks so much, Tess. It's been... Oh, thank um, you, Mike. It's a, an amazing story. I think, I don't know, most of you living here in Marlborough... We kind of take it for granted that Marlborough's wine country now, but it wasn't like that, certainly not when I was growing up here. And it is an amazing story, amazing 50 years, amazing 50 stories that you've told, Tess. Um, as I say, the book's not out till September, but um, if you want a copy, go to Karen out in the foyer. She's taking pre-orders for it now, so you can make sure that you've got a copy and Tess will be happy to talk with you afterwards definitely about this and in the meantime here's to you Tess mm -hmm. thanks so much for everything you've done for Marlborough for the wine industry and for this book thanks for the wine thank you can I just add one thing we all sure. know as Montana and I, this is this is something I didn't know. This is one of the things that I learned that um, when Ivan Jukic came out from Croatia to New Zealand and he bought land in Titarangi, he had a, a market garden and he was growing some vines there. And he looked around; there were all these hills, and it reminded him of home. So that's why he called his wine company Montana, because it's the Croatian word for mountain. Well, it's not; it's actually the Italian word for mountain. And he had it all wrong. So, so Montana is n nothing to do with Croatia whatsoever. That was something that I learned. And Fabian, his son, has set up a new business, and he's called it Plumnina, and that's the Croatian word for mountain. <laughs> so we would we would have been Plumnina if he'd got it correct, not Montana. Thank goodness he got it wrong. Yeah, well, I would never have been able to say that with a drink under my belt. Cool. Mm. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Cheers. So that was Tessa Anderson and Mike White speaking at the Marlborough Book Festival. Thanks to them and to the Book Festival for sharing that recording. This podcast was made possible by Marlborough Wine and River Sun Nurseries. Uh, next time we'll be talking to Murray Cook and Brian Bicknell about Chardonnay and all the reasons we should be growing it, making it and drinking it in Marlborough. See you then.